Welcome back, everyone, to the Developmentor Podcast, and a special welcome to all our loyal listeners. I'm your host, Grant Ingersoll. We aim to be your source for interviews and content on careers in tech. For those new to the show, we have three goals. We want to showcase interesting people in tech across a variety of roles. We also want to highlight the different paths people take in their careers. And most importantly, we want to help you find your path. If you want to learn more, please visit our website at developmentor.com. Okay, enough of the preamble. Let's get to our interview. Today's guest is joining us from Berlin, Germany, and is yet another example on the show of a fairly common pathway into software development. The physics major turned developer. In the early days of his career, he has the distinction of being the technical lead on one of the world's leading game franchises before moving on to a variety of other software engineering roles. Over the years, he's held leadership positions, including principal architect, VP of architecture, VP of engineering, and CTO. Along that journey, he's worked across a variety of industries beyond gaming, including mapping software and fashion. On top of all, he's built this career living in at least four different countries that I'm aware of. Please welcome to the show, Eric Bowman. Hi, Grant. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and Eric, it's, it's great to have you. You know, we've known each other for, for quite a long time, so thank you very much for joining. Uh, what I'd love to have us start off with is just, you know, give me kind of the highlights. So, you know, I, I hinted at some of those things in the intro, but I would love for you to fill in our listeners a little bit more, like what, what, what went into some of those roles and, and how you got to where you are now. Yeah, you know, it's funny because I, I really fell in love with computers from the first moment I saw an Apple II in, uh, it must have been 1977 or 1978. Um, but I never really wanted a career in software. I always wanted to be a physicist. And uh, I pursued that for some years and, and even against some frustration. And the whole time I was kind of working on the side, sometimes as a hobbyist and sometimes for extra money on the side, writing software different forms. And, I, and it was always incredibly fulfilling. When I reached the point of like, well, okay, I need to uh, figure out what I'm going to do next. I managed to sleep through the graduate school admissions test. And uh, I realized I had another year on my hands. And meanwhile, some of the software that I had been writing uh, at Reed College where I was a student got sort of picked up and school got a grant to continue that work. And so I more or less continued as a student for writing software. And really one thing led to another. And I think, you know, to some extent that characterizes how most of my career has gone, which is that it's been kind of a, a series of lucky accidents. Um, and, you know, so many that it makes me wonder, is there really some subconscious plan there? Um, <laughs> you know, my, my first real job was working at Maxis and I it wasn't really a computer game player, but I was certainly aware of and kind of in awe of the SimCity franchise. And I saw an ad posted for a junior software engineer working at Maxis in, a, in what they call their core technology group. And I, I honestly kind of bluffed my way through the game playing part because I wanted the job so bad. Uh, <laughs> nice. And I the job and was you know, pretty lucky. And as the company's fortunes sort of stumbled a bit, it became clear that they couldn't really afford to keep us on as researchers and we had to pick up a game and you know the the kind of the advice was there's this really great game called stim circus which is obviously the future and that's what you should do and if you don't want to do that there's this other thing that we don't think is going to work out that's something about a dollhouse simulator and we kind of took a step back and said well you know it's the dollhouse simulator is the brainchild of the guy who invented SimCity, so maybe we should jump on that 
that really, you know, was a pretty lucky, lucky move. And it was an incredibly difficult, almost five years of development uh, by a pretty small team. Oh, wow. The company wasn't really behind it at first. A few senior people really got it. But overall, people were skeptical. And of course, it took off beyond our wildest dreams. It was in the San Francisco Bay Area. And, and uh, meantime, the dot-com boom had been happening and felt like I was kind of missing out. And so after the sim shipped, I, I joined a dot-com startup, which, you know, if I, with the benefit of hindsight, it probably never could have worked. But it was really an interesting crash course in learning about the internet. And when that all fell apart, I uh, jumped to one of our customers, which was based in London. And again, sort of, you know, through through luck and having come from California, people thought that I knew probably more than I did and got to lead a pretty big effort running what was called a service delivery platform for this phone company. Kind of the first 3G mobile operator back before 4G. And again, it was just a total sort of trial by fire to figure out all this stuff. Nobody really knew whether, for example, we could run Java at that kind of scale. Hmm. That went on for some years and was you know, just an incredible learning experience. But eventually that sort of wound down and I tried to do a startup and that didn't work out. And then I ended up at TomTom where one of the people that I worked on the Sims with had gone. So I found myself you know, in quite a deep technical field about which I knew nothing and learned as fast as I could and did some of their early online efforts. But I was commuting from Dublin and I had uh, small children and the travel was difficult. And so I took a job in Dublin working for a company called Guild Group, which was uh, this online fashion e-commerce flash sales startup. That was you know, a big shift from TomTom and... and you know, flash sales, most of the day's business happens in about 10 minutes. And uh, so there are these incredible non-functional requirements around being available. And at this point, public cloud wasn't really an option. I saw it as, a, as an incredible engineering challenge to be able to do that. And it was a really great team. And that was when I got into engineering management for the first time, which I'd always been a little bit skeptical and always been uh, an individual contributor up to that point. And I really came to enjoy the kind of holistic view of, of having engineering depth uh, and also some ability to steer, you know, notoriously difficult to manage software engineers. And then that led to going to Berlin to be the first VP engineering at a German company called Zalando, which is a, a much larger fashion e-commerce site. And there I really got to experience um, hypergrowth and introducing change into the culture. We made a lot of a lot of changes to how engineers practice and embraced the cloud and introduced a number of architectural concepts. And that went really quite well. And it's just an amazing adventure that was a nice combination of still being pretty technical while also looking after a lot of people. About a thousand people was the oh, wow. peak team size. Um, and then about a year ago, I started talking to TomTom Tom again and really couldn't say no to going back to a technical field that I was really quite passionate about and, and quite a senior role overseeing engineering. Nice. Doing also similar kind of cultural change. And yeah, it's really exciting. Wow. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I guess if you follow that out uh, logically, pretty soon you'll be back in the gaming industry, right? <laughs> <laughs> Eric, you hit on a number of actually really interesting things in there. And one of them, you know, you mentioned this phrase, lucky accidents. I, in my own career, prefer to call it guided exploration. In other words, I'm going in a direction. <laughs> but if, if something interesting comes along, let's go and take that, right? And it seems like your career has 
mirrored that a lot, right? And and I'm wondering, like, were there underpinnings of your preparation or the way you learned in school or growing up that that you felt made you particularly suited to be able to kind of come into all these new things and get up to speed pretty quickly? Yeah, actually, so I think about that a lot. And I also think about it in the context of trying to raise my own children. I think the most important thing that I personally learned in school was just how to learn. Hmm. I was lucky enough to have access to quite a broad education. I didn't realize until quite recently that it's a bit strange that I have a Bachelor of Arts in Physics. Uh, <laughs> people, people look at that and say, is it a typo? I was like, no, I, I really do have a, a Bachelor of Arts degree and you know, studied philosophy and humanities and languages and, and did a lot of writing. And at the time, I didn't realize that was so unusual. But in retrospect, it's turned out to be very valuable to you know have some insight into culture really and communication and you know, being able to communicate effectively at scale is incredibly useful as you know essentially to have influence you you and i are both evidence that the liberal arts should not be dying right like it is entirely possible to be computer science to be math to have that stem background but to do it in the context of a liberal arts education such that you, you know, God forbid, are actually well-rounded in this world, right? And, and that's actually part of the, the premise of the show, right, is that, you know, there's a lot of different ways into this stuff. And, and part of the, the beauty of it all is there's all these different viewpoints that are accessible. I want to delve into the, the gaming bit a little bit more because I think, you know, like most teenagers who grew up in the 80s when, when video games really first hit the scenes, I thought it would really be quite cool to work in that industry when I got older. And, and you actually did. And I'm wondering, you know, so you mentioned like The Sims was five years in the making. Sounds like it was a grind at the time. By the way, my niece is a huge fan. She can't believe that I'm interviewing you right now. <laughs> so just you know, props there. I think every Christmas I buy her a Sims expansion pack. Uh, but, but I wondered if you can peel back the curtain a little bit more on game development or at least game development during that time. Yeah. I mean, I think the first thing I would say about game development is that it's incredibly hard. It is very labor intensive. And now, of course, games are developed with large teams and huge budgets. We had a small team, started with three, and then added a fourth and fifth. And by the time we were done, there were about 60 people working on it. But the, the, the ramp up happened really over the last three or maybe six months. It's a lot like venture capital. It's very, very risky. And you have a few hits that really succeed and make a ton of money. But most games end up not doing so well. Hmm. So, you know, there's been a lot of criticism about how, you know, the kind of hours that people have to work in the game industry. At least at the time, engineers working on games were considered perhaps, you know, a, a lower class of engineer uh, in some sense, or hackers, not really connected to, to uh, computer science in any way. And, I, you know, in retrospect, I, I do think that, that there was something to that, but at the same time, I think it was terribly unfair. I'm constantly humbled when, when I look back at just how very difficult it was to create this sort of immersive experience. And that even though a lot of the other software that I've worked on uh, was very difficult, this somehow, it just felt like it was never ending. 
because the you know essentially the standard is is to recreate something that matches reality. It is humbling to try and do that. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Yeah, you think? No. <laughs> I mean, in five years, that's an eternity in game world, especially these days. I mean, you know, you think about it, some of these titles, they have to ship every single year at the same time, right? Like Madden, Madden NFL, right? Like every August that thing comes out, right? Obviously here a little bit more of a new idea, but I'm sure there's plenty of times during that where you had to kind of show proof of life right? Like year two, like, hey, are you all making progress on this or not? <laughs> right? Yeah. I, I mean, yeah, it's certainly it's not a model that I would advocate. And certainly no team of mine has ever worked in that way. You know, we were working closely with the founder. He, I mean, if he hadn't been part of it, we would have failed, certainly, and, and they would have pulled pulled the plug. But I think, you know, that was one nice lesson was really to, you know, try to associate yourself with the most successful people that you can yeah at least with their philosophy is coherent with yours right but i think you know one other one other insight about that time that that i've often reflected on is you know how incredibly hard we worked and you know you read about the kind of sweatshop lifestyle of the game programmer and it was absolutely that but no one was asking it mm. It was completely voluntary. I mean, at one point, I, I would work 24 hours, sleep eight, work 24 hours, sleep eight. And uh, the boss said, you know, you have to stop. You're, gonna, you're really going to hurt yourself. But there was no pressure to do it. It was, and, and when I look back, you know, it was such a privilege at that point in my life to not have any real responsibilities, which prevented that. But to care about something so deeply that I was willing to work that hard on it, I mean... It was a privilege, and it is something that I wish on anyone who aspires to uh, really have impact in the world that they, at some point in their life, for some period of time, find something that so inspires them that they really can put everything that they have into it because yeah. that experience is definitely worth it. Yeah, and you'll never, you'll never look back and re regret that, right? As long as you learn the lessons coming out of it. Uh, that's That's so cool. I mean, it's such a interesting way of looking at things. And, you know, and of course, during that time, it's like a crash course in learning as well. So I can totally appreciate yeah. that. So you, you, you finish up at The Sims, you had a few more roles as a developer, and then you, you kind of made this leap into leadership positions. I think, if I recall correctly, you kind of starting with technical leadership and then, and then actually going into engineering management. I think you said at Gilt was your, uh, your first leap i mean was that something that came about organically or were you like hey i'm at this point in my career where it's time to move up no it was pretty pretty organic i would say if that if that's a synonym for kicking and screaming <laughs> oh well it would fill me in a little bit then i mean <laughs> what was the what was your mindset going through that if, if you felt it was kicking and screaming i think this is something a lot of developers struggle with i know i struggled a long yeah. time with this this question, do I stay technical? As if it's this binary choice, you're either a manager or you're technical. Yeah, so you know, it's taken me some years to find the right language to talk about that. I didn't know how to say it at the time, but the way I look at it now, I really wanted to continue to increase my impact. And you know, the whatever combination of uh, luck, skill, and uh, hubris, and probably some treachery, <laughs> I was able to program a computer pretty well. 
and you know move the wheel, move the dial for different companies. But at some point, what you can do is an individual runs out. You know exactly at what point, uh, what level of impact depends a lot on the individual. And uh, you know, I'd watched a number of my friends, and especially you know, maybe more than average number of friends, given a more liberal arts background, had become managers. And I, I often tried to understand, you know, how that happened for them. And the the one response I heard years ago, I can't even remember who said it, but it really stuck with me was, the alternative seemed worse. Hmm. You know, it was it was like either either I'm going to become the manager or they're going to get someone that I don't think should be the manager. And I would, you know, the first option sounds better. And so I had that in the back of my mind. And I was thinking, well, that seems like a real, not a great trade-off or not a great reason for doing it. But when I got to Guild, you know, I really connected with the senior team and really respected them more than I had respected the leadership I had been exposed to elsewhere. And I now know it's it more about the kind of exposure that I was getting than the actual people. But somehow, you know, I was sort of thrust in, into a leadership team. It's like, okay, actually, this makes sense to me. And I never, I had never really seen it done at that level before. And I, I can contribute here. So that, you know, I I'd never had a direct report until that point. And then uh, I picked up an architecture team of uh, basically the most most senior developers in the company. Difficult to manage, to say the least. But it also it kind of took off from there. I mean, it was kind of thrilling in a way that, you know, first of all, it wasn't quite as mysterious as I thought, nor, and the intentions really were good. And then the problems were just as hard as the problems that we were trying to solve as engineers. And it's really, you know, in both cases at scale, it ends up being system problems uh, and very difficult to reason about. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. But I, I I had been very unwilling, and then all of a sudden, it just made sense. <laughs> no, no going back. Yeah, I mean, it, it reminds me a little bit of episode four that we recorded with Camille Fournier, and she she talks about her own path. Uh, actually, at a similar fashion company, Rent the Runway, and she's written a book about it called The Manager's Path, and I think she does such a good job of capturing some of these things that you're talking about here. You know, and of course, Guild Group at that time was on fire, right? Everybody was into flash sales. And so I'm sure you just had this in kind of incredible energy that, that derives from like, hey, wow, we're, we're on our path. Yeah. That's super interesting too. I mean, I think one of my friends, uh, Chris Bouton, who actually is one of our episodes as well, said to me, he's like, Grant, like, do you want to see your ideas implemented even if it's not you doing them? Or would you rather have all these ideas and never see them implemented because you're waiting, you know, you don't have time to do them yourself. And that kind of was the, the you know, the proverbial nail in the coffin for me. Uh, and it sounds like you, you went through kind of a similar path there of like, okay, I want to, I want to take my impact up to the next level. I'm wondering also then, anytime I have leaders on the show, I really like to hear how they approach these questions. You know, you you mentioned the team of engineers were difficult to manage. You, you've mentioned a couple of these other places you've had to make cultural change. I'm, I'm wondering how do you come in and approach hiring and building teams and, and what do you look for in people? Yeah, great question. And there, yeah, that's a bit of an onion, really. So I've tried to simplify it down uh, as much as I can. And I've been in a couple situations where, for example, we had specific growth targets in terms of hiring. I'm always a bit skeptical of that approach, but sometimes you do really need to hire uh, kind of as many people as you can. Essentially, when you 
assess talent from my point of view, you're really looking along three dimensions. And the first is whether or not the person can show leadership. And that's whether as a manager or just as an individual contributor, bringing in people who can lead if you're trying to scale, either through thought leadership or, or people leadership is incredibly important. And so the first thing I really try to look at is leadership. And this has sort of emerged as a thing in, in part through the Amazon leadership principles, which I've spent quite a bit of time trying to understand, even though I think I don't necessarily agree with all of them. I think that approach is quite effective in terms of setting the mindset for how leaders behave. And, and I think it's really useful to do something like that. And that, you know, especially that agreeing to disagree is not really an option. We, we have to be able to disagree and commit to things and work as a team. The second dimension is around impact. It's usually not that hard in my experience to figure out whether someone understands what real impact means. That's usually for me the easier, easiest thing to cover hmm. in an interview. And mm -hmm. very often uh, when people get to an interview, Stage, they've either had impact or they've seen impact. You know, having only seen impact is not quite enough, although it's not necessarily disqualifying if they really recognize. But there's so many things that we can do. It's so hard to know what is the right thing to do. And in yourself, you know, developing the skill to seek out what is the most impactful thing that we can do here and really valuing that is a key, key dimension uh, for me in terms of people. And then the third is around, are, are they on a continual learning path? I do occasionally, it's rare, but occasionally I meet people who really don't feel like they have that much still to learn. And that is uh, a great tragedy <laughs> because you know, there's several lifetimes of learning ahead of each and every one of us. Just openness to learning is absolutely key. And it also connects to avoiding a victim mentality. I definitely through part of my life uh, had strong victim mentality tendencies and I've seen it in lots of other people and it's a very natural thing that happens and everyone has it some of the time. Um, but the antidote to that really is that like, you know, is this thing that's happening to me or is this the thing that I can learn from? Being able to do kind of mental pivot to this is a thing I can learn from is really essential for building high performance teams. Yeah. I, and I love that you, this notion of always be learning. And that's been a mantra of mine in many ways as well. I mean, I think it's maybe again, it's that liberal arts training way back when, but uh, I think at the end of the day, my personal philosophy is the purpose of our, our lives is to learn. That's of course my view, but it, it sounds like there's some shared view there. And it's really interesting because I too have suffered over the years around this notion of victim mentality of, oh, why is this happening to me? And and I think, you know, we all have those dark moments. So I'm curious if you could share some things that have either helped you or helped others get out of that. Yeah, the, um, there's actually, there's a book that I, that I really, really like that covers this called The 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership which has, honestly, the title is a bit touchy-feely uh, for me, and I, I glossed over it, but I was trying to understand someone else, and uh, this came up, and it's, it's a very, very, very good book to read, uh, especially for leaders, but really for everyone. I mean, I, I already shared kind of the core idea, which is to do this mental pivot out of yeah. and things are happening to me. It's been personally quite helpful for me to see some quite strong leaders just 
kind of inject the right questions at the right moments. Mm. I think, you know, it's pretty well understood that asking good questions is one of the hallmarks of effective leadership. For me, it was a bit different, the theory and the practice. The practice was disarming and even occasionally, you know, personally humiliating when I wasn't on top of my game. Mm. And I wouldn't really recommend that approach, but it it did. It has happened to me. Um, (laughs) Yep. Join the group. (laughs) 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 you know my own experience on that is it's it's almost always the case where it it ends up coming back on you is when you make an assumption right and and that's i think one of the the key parts of asking a, a better question is to essentially check your assumptions at the door right or as my old football coach used to say, you know, if you assume you make an ass out of you and me, that's, that's kind of the... My very first day at Maxis, very first meeting, someone used that line, and I had never heard it before. It's still bouncing around, uh, you know, almost 25 years later. <laughs> yeah, isn't it funny how some things stick with us? Well, you know, it's interesting. So you've, you've been brought in to, to make culture change in a couple of times. It kind of begs the question of, What's going on in software engineering? Like, you're not the only place to go through this. I think a lot of orgs struggle with quote unquote culture change. In your mind, what's at the heart of that? Uh, you know, from part of my own intellectual journey has been one of over time valuing the role of management more and more. And when I started out, I mean, I mean, basically, I was an a borderline HR problem for most of my career. I didn't really respect managers. I didn't respect things like HR. Um, you've become I, what I, you... Honestly, I was going to say, you've become what you most hated. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I've embraced it, but I had it completely wrong. I mean, completely wrong. And it was hubris and getting the software is something that, you know, very often it's very smart people who get into the software you know it is a life of the mind in some sense and you can really excel relative to others based on your cognitive ability and your uh, ability to work and certainly in my own case and i've seen it in many many others uh, there's a lack of humility around what has come before you know our ancestors were not stupid and they they learned a lot and there's a tendency to say ah well you know discard it all. It doesn't matter anymore. Now, they also got some things wrong. And a lot of uh, sort of 20th century management philosophy is not super helpful. On the one hand, there's there's been a reaction against that, which has led to very little management. But really, you know, the people who invented that were solving a problem with a set of constraints. Those constraints have changed. Um, you know, the nature of, say, factory work is very different from the nature of information work. But what hasn't changed is, is our ability to sort of capture, you know, what is the problem that we're trying to solve and what can we learn from the past to solve that. And when I look at the, the changes that really have stuck and that had the most impact, for the most part, it wasn't new ideas at all increasing teamwork and communication and encouraging intellectual honesty and creating you know a more blameless environment so that people were not afraid to talk about controversial things 
and these are by no means new ideas. You know, I mean, it, it's really it's what the academy you know, was uh, meant to be all about. Um, right, that makes a lot of sense. And I think the other thing, though, is despite lots of talk about what's important, very often that talk doesn't translate into concrete actions. At the end of the day, most companies have to make money and they have to ship products. And it's really easy to make compromises along the way. It's difficult to know which principles to stick to. And if you stick to the wrong ones, you may fail. And then, of course, there's also what works for a startup doesn't work for a successful startup. And Mm -hmm. so there always has to be change. And uh, I'm not sure I necessarily had somehow like different ideas uh, that magically worked. I think there was a lot of luck around timing on my part. But I will say that being principled about automation is incredibly effective Hmm. across the board. And I would even go further to say that automation is a powerful mechanism for changing cultures, that you can actually start to automate the culture that you want. And I think that this is not not well understood yet, but tools like Slack and chat ops, they really automate a cultural change. Interesting. So the idea being that, you know, by by reducing the toil of work, uh, you know, at the end of the day, you're you're then freeing up people to to be more creative, to take on the harder problems. And in many ways, this is, you know, the, the proverbial computer is a tool, right? Use it to gain leverage, right? So many good things in there, Eric. I, I want to actually shift a little bit here because, you know, on, on top of all of these things, one of the things I love here is that, you know, you've done this across the world, <laughs> right? Or at least across the U.S. and Europe. You know, you've, you've kind of gone across a number of different cultures doing that. And I'm wondering if you might just reflect on, you know, how that moving around, you know, at least North America and, and Europe has played into your career. There's pretty well documented there's a lot of different cultural differences here and and you're coming in and having to navigate you know a number of them how is that factored in yeah that's uh that that is a really challenging thing to nail down honestly and uh people very often ask me what for example what's the difference between u.s tech culture and european tech culture and i i don't like to answer that specific question uh which is also not the question you you asked (laughs) (laughs) What I've started to do more is to try to identify what are the great parts of the different cultural contexts that I've seen. Because I th- what I found is that these different locations have different strengths and weaknesses. And I'm not going to identify weaknesses, but I will characterize. I think, you know, just the, the absolute can-do boldness, you know, disrespectful even positivity of the valley is amazing. And uh, I do miss that sometimes. I don't think that exists in quite the same way anywhere in the world. And it's a big deal. Yeah. Of course, the fact that there are no non-compete clauses in employment contracts is also helpful. <laughs> uh, I contributed a lot uh, to sharing knowledge. And you know what you end up with is almost the entire West Coast is kind of like one big mega company. When you move from company to company, there's much more familiar than not. There's a lot of uniformity in thinking and how product works and how engineering works. And so there's a bit, there's kind of a flywheel effect around that uh, on the West Coast. Europe doesn't have the same kind of kind of mega corporation. There are some big players. SAP is obviously uh, enormous. 
but Zalando has been successful. Spotify has been successful. Even TomTom has been successful and really as pure tech companies. Um, and they've influenced the culture and benefited also from learning from the West Coast. You know, one of the things that I really enjoy about engineering in Europe is you take it very seriously as a craft. And people are genuinely, they're not really, you know, focused so much on where's my career going? You know, how many options do I have? But much more about this is what I'm doing and I really want to be great at this. It's somehow, it's less exuberant in, in its optimism but more steady and pragmatic in its approach. And uh, it's somehow, it's it's a nicer way to live in my experience. Well, I imagine too, just like, you know, I mean, it kind of goes back to your premise around learning, which is every place you land in, right? It's like, okay, uh, there's there's a whole bunch of new things to learn here, right? And and that could yeah. be incredibly stimulating for, for somebody, especially, you know, like yourself, who, who comes from that liberal arts background, who has this natural curiosity. I want to shift gears just to, you know, we're, we're coming to the, to the end of the interview here. I want to shift gears and a couple of questions just around kind of the here and now and, and forward looking and jobs and careers aren't all fun and games, right? So, you know, you're in this role leading engineering, SVP of engineering, VP of engineering type roles, CTO. What's the one best thing and the one most challenging thing about being in that role? The best thing is the feeling of accomplishing at scale, technical vision or set of technical visions that, you know, ideally you're pushing on a a purpose that makes sense and that really impacts customers or, you know, also known as real people. For me, you know, personally, I was very lucky with the Sims that uh, I got to work on something that had quite a significant impact on millions of people. And that feels good. I was a cog in a wheel and definitely an individual contributor. But to actually enable those kind of experiences for people um, and help them see, you know, a better version of themselves than maybe they thought was possible and then, you know, make progress achieving that while achieving uh, impact on the world, incredibly personally satisfying. Watching people's careers develop and seeing everything just get better. Mm. I don't know what exactly my purpose is. You know, maybe it is to learn. But part of it, uh, I think, is to, to develop leaders and to pass on what I've been lucky enough to have passed on. So that's the good part. I think the challenging part is, you know, and what many software engineers that move into management really struggle with, myself included, is how to how to manage the kind of parallelism of so much going on, and becoming a leader of leaders and doing that well, and learning how to delegate and and coming up with a, a kind of an operating model for what you need to know and what you don't need to know is extremely challenging. You know, time is is one of these precious resources that just isn't like anything else. And very, very few people are genuinely good at managing it. And so a lot of your effort is around how to manage time efficiently. When it goes well, and especially as a technical person in a leadership role, it frees you up to deep dive into what your kind of spidey sense, what direction, whatever direction your spidey sense points you. Mm. And you know, the difference between uh, engineering leaders and non-engineering leaders is very often that they can go quite deep where they're needed. And so the you know, the challenge is how to set yourself up to be able to do that. And then the further reward is to actually be able to do that uh, and have the world continue on without you. 
<laughs> now, you know, that really is true that, that you know success looks like not being needed uh, that is interesting it's also a very unsettling feeling as well so uh, definitely something i can relate to uh, my uh, particular my last role you know as a startup founder you get to this point where you're like wait like everybody else is doing the jobs i used to do what am i going to do next and, and you <laughs> you got to reinvent yourself right yeah uh, Eric, so many fantastic pieces in here. Like, you know, if you kind of were to wrap it all up and put a bow on it, you know, what's what's that one piece of advice or maybe a couple of pieces that, that you would really encourage our listeners to dig in on? You mentioned so many good things in there, the the learning, the learning about leadership, impact, you know, how do you how do you tie all that together? Yeah, I think the key the key points for me on sort of the I guess the advice front really are that it's probably better to open the doors that appear, even if it means being braver than you feel. There's a lot of people in the world who want to make you think that they understand what's going on a lot better than they do. Most people have, you know, myself included, almost no clue. At least, you know, in terms of how I imagined leaders must feel. It is really, you know, there is a huge amount of uncertainty. And so being brave and, and taking on that uncertainty and continuing to push yourself and believe in yourself that things are going to be okay. And if they're not, this is, I'm going to learn a lot. This is a great, great line from the butthole surfers. It's uh, better to uh, regret the things you have done than to regret the things you haven't done. And uh, I just, you know, when opportunities come, you have to, you know, give them the sniff test and just go for it. Because most people can do much more than they start out thinking. Uh, that's so great. I mean, I, I, I didn't think when I started this podcast that uh, we would be quoting the butthole surfers in terms of career <laughs> advice, but <laughs> that is, that's so eloquent. <laughs> Uh, you got me there. Uh, <laughs> I think that that's so true. You know, I think we're, you know, oftentimes leadership is portrayed as these people up on, on this mountain and, you know, we're all just trying to figure it out too. Right. I think, you know, yeah. it's, it's a different set of things you're trying to figure out, like, you know, the people dynamic, how do you help people work together to be a team? But, you know, at the end of the day, we're, we don't have all the answers. Uh, and I, yeah. I think that's key. Uh, so, wow, sorry, I'm still cracking up over, <laughs> over the quote, man. I love it. Found words from the model servers. Yeah, like, you know, put that on the wall. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, kind of wrapping things up then, you know, so you mentioned the 15 commitments of conscious leadership. We'll be sure to link that up in show notes. I know I'm uh, already ready to go download that one. Any other kind of resources that have been particularly impactful for you in, in terms of, figuring this stuff out yes i read a lot uh the goal is a book i wish that i had read 20 years earlier the the goal the goal yeah so the the phoenix project is better known and it's based on a book written in 1984 uh by a guy named Goldrot. it is a mind expanding book about how to turn around a factory it's just hmm. tremendous interesting i really enjoy the book clarity first and it's a recommended book for sure to anyone who wants to get into leadership about the importance of, of clarity and purpose. Those are kind of the books on my mind at the moment. Uh, oh, that's perfect. 
Eric, so great to have you. Uh, for our listeners who want to learn more from you, who perhaps want to follow you on social media, et cetera, where, where's the best place to find you? So I'm E. Bowman on Twitter, although I don't tweet all that much. Um, certainly LinkedIn. Uh, probably Twitter is, is, is uh, the best place. Yeah, that's fantastic. And Eric, thanks so much again for, for joining us today. Grant, thank you. It's an absolute pleasure. And it's always great to, to uh, chat with you. Yeah, and, and so great again to, to reconnect. It's been a few, it's been too many years. So look forward to our, our next chance to get together. And of course, thank you to our listeners for taking the time to listen. As always, if you like the show, we'd love for you to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or whatever your favorite podcast app is. I'm pretty sure we're on all the platforms. You can also, of course, visit us at developmentor.com to hear older episodes as well as find other content on careers in technology including the show notes for this episode most importantly if you like this show please tell your friends we really live off of referrals and then finally if you have any feedback on this episode or any other episode or perhaps you'd like to be a guest or you know somebody who wants to be a guest please drop us an email at podcast at developmentor.com Finally, we here at Developmentor hope that each and every episode helps you move one step closer to finding your path.